0: you have your Bible, you can open it up or turn it on to Joshua chapter 9. That's where we're going to be camping out today. Our scripture text is going to be the entirety of Joshua 9. So I'm going to read Joshua 9. I'm going to ask you to stand if you're able as I read Joshua chapter 9. Again, it's a longer than a normal text, so if you're not able to stand or need to sit for whatever reason, please feel free to do so. Joshua 9. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gideon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready, ready provisions But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, "'Perhaps you live among us. "'Then how can we make a covenant with you?' "'They said to Joshua, "'We are your servants.' "'And Joshua said to them, "'Who are you, "'and where do you come from?' "'They said to him, "'From a very distant country. "'Your servants have come because of the name "'of the Lord your God. "'We have heard a report of him "'and all that he did in Egypt "'and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites "'who were beyond the Jordan.' to Sion, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, the king of Bashan, who lived, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go meet them and say to them, we are your servants, come now, make a covenant with us. Here's our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses, from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst, and these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them, and made a covenant with them, to let them live, and let the 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 leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Kephira, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders." But all the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we have sworn to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Joshua summoned them. And he said to them, Why did you deceive us? saying, We are very far from you, when you dwell among us. Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood, and drawers of water for the house of my God. Then they answered Joshua because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight, do it to us. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord, to this day in the place that he should choose. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So obviously this week we come to Joshua chapter 9 after a little hiccup at I. And I had some of you ask me, why do you say I and not A-I? And a lot of us have grown up hearing A-I. We have no idea how any of this was pronounced. Just say it with confidence. I do have reasons why I choose I, but we have no idea how any of this was said back then. But the hiccup at I has caused the Canaanites to be a little bit emboldened. You saw in in this passage that they have decided they're going to come together. They're going to present a united front against Israel. They're, they're seeing an opportunity to attack and they're trying to take advantage of that opportunity. But part of the Canaanites, this group we're calling the Gibeonites, they came up with a different plan. They didn't wanna fight Israel. They wanted to trick Israel. They wanted to trick Israel into making a binding covenant with them for peace that they can't undo. And this, what we now call the Gibeonite deception, it works. And the reason it works is very, very clear. To us, Because of the way the author has chosen to write chapter 9, the Gibeonite deception works because Joshua and the people of Israel, they did not seek the counsel of the Lord. They did not seek God's will. So, had they, things could have turned out very differently. And you know, when I think about seeking the Lord, seeking the will of the Lord, is kind of this pendulum that I think a lot of us are... are prone to go to one side or the other on this pendulum. On one side we can be like the Israelites and just logic ourselves through every decision before us. We just use reason, we lean on human understanding, we make a decision, don't pause for two seconds to ask what would the Lord have for us in the situation. But on the other side of the pendulum we can be overwhelmed by trying to seek God's will in some very complex and very confusing situations. It can be paralyzing. So I think back to my, my 10 years in college ministry and fairly often I would be asked by some young man, you know, how do I seek God's will as it, as it pertains to finding a woman to marry? Because from where I'm sitting, there are 3.5 billion women on this earth and it's a little overwhelming to try and figure out the one that God has for me. And then they graduate and they've got to make other decisions. Where they're going to move. What kind of job they're going to take. Whether or not they're going to go into ministry. And the idea of seeking God's will for the one perfect outcome. If they don't understand this idea of God's will very well. It can be paralyzing. Because how am I supposed to know how to pick the very best option. When there's so many possibilities in front of us. So how do we seek God's will in an appropriate way? So this morning I want to kind of do a post-mortem on Joshua chapter 9, on the Gibeonite deception. And I want to look at it and I want for us to see why it is that we need to seek the will of God, how it is that we seek the will of God, and then thirdly, how we trust God once we've made a decision. So that's where we're going to go. We'll start as I said, with why we need to seek the will of God? The answer is simple, is because there is always, in every decision, much more going on than we could possibly see. We have what I call external forces, internal forces, and invisible forces working against us at every moment when we're trying to figure out what God's will is for us. So I want to flesh those three categories out a little bit. What do I mean by external forces? Well, largely two things. For one, there are just too many possible outcomes for us to even begin to think that our our sight and our intelligence and our wisdom can possibly compute every possible outcome. We just don't have that ability. But then you add on top of that the reality that there is an aspect of human trickery. People can be out for themselves. We may not be getting the right information. Certainly, that's what's going on in the Gibby night situation. And this is why I think Proverbs very clearly says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. So I want to kind of look at what it would have looked like if if the Israelites had applied that verse to their situation so as I said the Gibeonites they chose not to fight they chose to trick because they were one of the the people you know these Canaanites that God had chosen to wipe out completely and if you're new here and if you haven't been with us and this idea of God wanting to wipe out an entire people group it doesn't sit well I want to tell you we've already addressed it but I've I've I wrote a blog and put it on our, our website. If that, doesn't sit with you, hope, if that doesn't sit well with you, hopefully that blog will help flesh out what's going on uh, in this passage and why God would have any group of people wiped out. But the Gibeonites, they are a part of these people. They live not too far from Jerusalem, and they come to the Israelites, and they want to make it look... Like they've really come from very far off. You know, so far off that our, our sandals are worn and our clothes are patched, our, our wineskins have burst, the saddles are old. And one thing I noticed this week that I never realized before is that they don't even mention, uh, when they talk about all these great things your God has done, they don't even mention the victories at Jericho and I. Because they want to make, we were, we're from so far off that we haven't even, that news hasn't even made it to us yet. And in this, the Israelites come off kind of looking kind of foolish. I mean, when you look at verse 7, they're like, how do we know you're not really inhabitants here? You don't really live far off. And it's easy to think, gosh, what idiots, these Israelites. Why, why couldn't they figure out these Gibeonites? They were just trying to trick them. And the more I think about it, I'm inclined to give the Israelites a little bit of grace here <laughs> because I think this would have been a pretty compelling option for them. I don't have any reason to believe that the Israelites were savages who enjoyed killing people, men, women, children, uh, donkeys, oxen. I think the idea of making peace with somebody would have been very compelling. And on top of that, how do you even, how can you prove this Gibeonite situation? I mean, you can't, the only way you could prove is to walk weeks and weeks, maybe months in one direction to go and find this group of people they're claiming to be a part of. To me, it kind of reminds me of those infomercials. I don't know if you remember like the $3 knife that you'll never have to replace or the weight loss program that doesn't require any habit changes or no physical exertion whatsoever. You know, we want these things to be true, but we won't know honestly unless we buy it. Of course, that was before all the... You can look it up online. But back then, when I was a kid, you, you didn't know unless you tried it. So I am sympathetic to the Israelites because I know that when you want something to be true, when, you, when something is compelling enough to you, when you desired enough, it's easy to convince yourself that it's God's will for you. That's what I think happened to the Israelites. And I know that we're just as guilty. So I, I go back to my college Ministry analogy. Angela would have armies of women in our house for her Bible studies and, and frequently, you know, we'd see a freshman woman come in and, and she's on fire for Jesus and she'd, she'd tell Angela or, or both of us, I'm looking for a man to marry, but I am not gonna marry anybody unless he is a mighty man of God. Maybe gonna be a missionary. Fast forward to senior year, if nothing's happened yet, it's like, I'm just looking for a good man. Just want a good man, good man, loves the Lord. Fast forward to late 20s, maybe it still hasn't happened. If the dude knows where a church is, I'll be happy. <laughs> and then, it's not uncommon to say, he he's not a Christian, but he's okay that I am. I, I really think we could make this work. I think this could be God's will for me. And so what's happening is when these These women want something badly enough. It's so easy to convince yourself that it's God's will for you when it's not. And again, all of us do this. That's what I call the internal threat. We have the external threat, all the possibilities, human trickery, but we then have this internal component because very often our will naturally is gonna go the opposite direction of God's will for us. That's how it works, and then we convince ourselves that what we want is what God really wants. So we have this, the Israelites have experienced both of these, this external threat, this internal threat, but then we have this invisible threat. And and I, I will admit that this invisible threat isn't laid out in Joshua chapter nine, but we see it so often over the course of the Bible, probably most clearly in Ephesians chapter six, that we have to assume that it's at play somehow in this story, you may remember Ephesians six it says, "For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood." So the Gibeonites and the Canaanites, they're not the only enemies out there, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly player, places. So we have rulers, plural, authorities, plural, powers, plural, spiritual forces of evil, plural. So not only do we not know all the possibilities, the outcomes, not only are people trying to trick us, not only does our will naturally run against the will of God, now we have this army that we can't see opposing us at every turn. And I appreciate how Chuck prayed before this because I'll be honest, there, there are a lot of weird things going on in this church right now. Most of them health, And I don't know what all's going on, but I know there's a lot we can't see. And it really feels like there is an enemy who does not like what's happening at this church right now. And for all these reasons, we need to seek the will of God. We need his counsel. We need to understand what he would have for us as individuals and as a church if we are going to enjoy him and glorify him. So how is it that we seek his will? I'm glad you asked. Second point, seeking the will of God is a very misunderstood thing in our society. And and I'm just talking about Christians. I'm not even gonna go outside of Christianity. We see a dramatic rise right now in things like tarot card readings, astrology, um, fortune telling. I was just reading the LA Times. They're talking about the, the return of crystals and all that these crystals do to heal you and guide you. And the majority of the people who utilize these things in the United States of America would call themselves Christians. But this isn't at all how God has, has told us that we're supposed to seek his will. And you have people saying, oh, well, what about Gideon and, and the fleece? That, that kind of feels like the same thing. I actually heard a pastor not too long ago talking about how he was seeking the will of God and he came up a way to lay down his metaphorical fleece, the same way Gideon had, not realizing that what Gideon done, what had done was not a good thing. It's not something that anywhere else in the Bible is condoned because what Gideon was doing by laying down a fleece was not having faith in what God had already told him that he was supposed to do. And then people say, well, you had the apostles, and they were casting lots. That, That sounds a lot like the same kind of thing over here. And for one, we don't know exactly what the apostles did when they casted lots. But we do know that they were very special people in a very, very unique time. And nowhere in Scripture is what they did commended to us as a way to seek the will of God. So that's one way that we as a group of people who call ourselves Christians can get off on this will of God. But I think in a room like this, we would go to the other side. So we have another pendulum here. I think we would be more likely to say things like, well, God's sovereign and everything's going to turn out the way that he wants. So why really should I try and seek his will that hard? And I've been guilty of saying that before. But when we say that, we reveal that we really don't understand what this thing called the will of God is. Because the Bible tells us there are two wills in God. God has two kinds of wills. And we need to understand both to understand what it is that we're supposed to do. And depending on where you come from, people categorize these two wills differently. But they're all the same. So I'm going to kind of stay in the John Piper stream and call one the will of decree and one the will of command. All right, the will of decree and the will of command. And we have to know the difference if we're ever gonna understand what it is that God wants us to do in terms of seeking his will, seeking his counsel. So the will of decree. God's will of decree is his sovereign will that will always come to pass no matter what. God's sovereign will that will come to pass no matter what. And so we we see it all over the Bible, just to give you a few examples. In Acts chapter four, we can look at how the apostles prayed. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, whom you appointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. To what? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Or Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. Right before his crucifixion, Jesus prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this pass cup from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This is God's will of decree. Not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from the Father. This is God's will of decree. God's will of dis- decree, it ensures that everything, when we come to the end, everything will work for God's glory. God will be glorified. And so this is why we can trust God when we lose our jobs, when we lose our faith, or when you make a covenant with somebody you weren't supposed to make a covenant with. We can trust God. And we're going to come back to that in a minute. But what I want us to see is this will, this will of decree, it isn't something that we're to be overly consumed in pursuing. Because largely, I mean, we know some things about the future from the Bible. We know some things are going to happen. But largely, the will of decree is God's thing. And when we try to find out the will of decree, we're basically trying to predict the future, which is what fortune tellers do, not what Christians do. So this is God's sovereign will. It will happen, and we shouldn't be overly consumed with figuring out what it is. Now, let's contrast this with the will of command. That is something very, very different. This is what God wills for us, what God commands us to do, and doesn't always come to pass. God commands, He wills that we would be sexually pure, that we would not lie, that we would not cheat and steal, that we would lift each other up. But does that always happen? No, it doesn't always come to pass. And we should seek this will of command. We should really pursue this will of command because when God's will of command does not come to pass, God is offended and people suffer. Israel suffered when Achan sinned, Israel suffered when Joshua and the leadership did not seek the Lord in the Gibeonite deception. So it doesn't always come to pass, and we should absolutely seek it. And this is what Paul meant. In this very famous verse from Romans chapter 12, talking about the will of command, not the will of decree. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing, and here it is, you may discern what is the will of God. That's that will of command for you. What is good and acceptable and perfect. So God's will of command is what we're talking about. It is something that we should seek. It is something that we can know. And you know, some parts of his will of command are a lot easier to figure out than others. You know, his, his will of command on bank robbery is fairly clear. All right? his, his will of command on which job we should take, which person we should marry, you know, where we should move, that's not always as clear. So how do we pursue God's will of command, whether it's on the simpler side or on the more complex side. I think there are largely three aspects to it that I want to look at. First, we immerse ourselves in God's word. We immerse ourselves in God's word. Now, Joshua, he had the benefit of listening to God audibly. That sounds kind of nice. I mean, I'm not... Thinking that that's the case for most of the people in this room, that God is guiding you through His will of command audibly on a daily basis. And the reason that God isn't guiding us audibly is because we have an even more complete and an even more comprehensive way to understand His will of command than even Joshua had. We have the Word. We have the Word, which is better than even hearing audibly. You know, I. Uh, I I think it's fascinating. When you look at the second century church, um, they begin to send letters to each other that we have talking about, you know, are you experiencing a drastic reduction in the signs and wonders that we've been used to? And everybody says, yeah, yeah, we're all experiencing this drastic reduction in the signs and wonders that perfectly corresponded to all the churches getting all the different books of the Bible that we now have. So we see where Bible access increases, these signs and wonders decrease. And the same is happening today. We hear these great stories of people being converted through signs and wonders and angels and dreams. And and I'm inclined to think that this in large part really is God's activity. But when Bible access increases in these parts of the world, we see a decrease in these kinds of activities. Because the Bible can speak more clearly to a human being than any angel, vision, dream, signs, or wonders. And scripture says this. It is why Paul says, if you discern the spirits, test the miracles by scripture. Scripture has always been given a more authoritative position, a more comprehensive position than any other kind of communication from God. So I think it sounds really cool to hear from God audibly. I would love for that to happen to me. But what we're seeing is that we have something even better. So are we taking advantage of it? Are we diving in to the word of God? Is it guiding us through the simple decisions, through the more complex decisions? You know, we we get in the word and we can see some things really clearly just from the Ten Commandments, you know, it's like a, a spotlight. This, you should not lie. C- scripture clearly puts a spotlight on what we're supposed to do. But there was no verse that said, Jim, Art, to go to Orlando Grace Church. <laughs> you know, I had to, how the the word of God guided me in a different kind of way. You know, when when I have a more complex decision, a more unique decision to myself, you know, often it's not, one spotlight, but as I begin to log all the things that God is teaching me in His Word, they begin to be dozens of small lights pointing the same direction. So we immerse ourselves in God's Word. Secondly, we immerse ourselves in God's people. Yet you know, we're not meant to be alone. You know, the, I hear all, all so many times outside of the church I'm spiritual but my spiritual life is a private thing you know our spiritual lives were never intended to be a private thing none of us is going to do very well spiritually if it's a private thing certainly the Israelites were in community I mean they triumphed together they lost together Joshua made a bonehead decision he was hearing about it from all his people they were in community they were working together they were encouraging each other they were challenging each other they were praying for each other no one in this room knows everything. You know, when it comes to, to God, who he is, what he wants us to be doing, that will of God, nobody knows everything. We're all wired differently. We're, we're gifted differently. We struggle differently. We have different experiences, which is why when we come together collectively, we can hear the will of God better than we ever could out there all by ourselves. And so this is why we have church membership. This is why online church is a bad idea. This is why we have community groups. And if I can take a second, since community groups so nicely fits in immersing yourself in the people of God, I want you to know that we have been working really hard this summer to give the people of Orlando Grace better access to community groups. We have kind of done the math and just to provide community groups for everybody who comes, right? We're not even talking about growth at this point. Just to provide community groups for everybody who comes regularly, we need to double the number of community groups that we have. And so that means more leaders, more hosts. Mike has been working hard on a a leader manual. Uh, we're, We're working on leader training, and we hope that this is gonna be something that we can present to you sometime in the fall once everything is ironed out. But I wanna make two specific requests. All right, if you are first, if you're here and you're not in a community group, between now and whenever in the fall that we present this plan to you, would you pray about joining one? Because when we're in a community group, we're in relationship with other Christians. We're able to process with other Christians. We can pray with other Christians. And we will know the will of God for us in a more significant way. Secondly, if you would be willing to host a community group, all right? so I'm not saying lead a community group. We, we, I think we're good on leaders, but if you have a home you would wanna open up, would you let us know? And we, we have some, some specific areas of town we're really eyeing, so it, we may say thank you, yes, thank you maybe next year, uh, we, we, but we need to know who is willing and able to host a community group because we f- believe deeply that that is a part of immersing ourselves in God's people. So we immerse ourselves in God's word, we immerse ourselves in God's people, and then thirdly, we immerse ourselves in God's spirit. God's spirit is who actually changes us, who changes our mind, who changes our heart. He's the one who causes us to see things differently. He's the one who causes us to do things, us to do things differently, but we have to pursue him. I mean, this is why the apostle Paul says we are to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. We are to... Uh, be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. There's something that we have to do. So what is that thing that we need to do? I, I think the people of God are a part of it. The word of God is a part of it. Praying is a part of it. But largely, what we're talking about is confessing our sin and running to Jesus. Daily, confessing our sin and running to Jesus. Confessing our sin and running to Jesus. That's what it looks like to give our lives over to the power of the Holy Spirit. Then in Ephesians 4, Paul contrasts uh, being filled with the Spirit with what? Being drunk. (laughs) In in the same way that when we drink alcohol, we can think differently and act differently, probably not usually in a good way. When we're full of the Spirit, when we immerse ourselves in the Spirit of God, we think differently and we act differently in a good way. He begins to take control of us. And this, at the core, is what it's about. Who's in control? Because remember, the natural, the natural force, or the, the, how did I say it? Not that, the, of, the, the force inside of us, our will is pushing us away from God's will. So it makes sense that if we're filled with the Holy Spirit, what we're talking about is giving control to him. Our will isn't going to take us the right direction, so we want to give control to him. And so that daily confessing our sins and running to Jesus is daily giving the Holy Spirit control over our lives, and it's going to change us at a subconscious level because at our deepest places of who we are, we're going to desire God's glory when we're constantly confessing our sin and running to Jesus. And all of a sudden, we're going to be making decisions differently and not even thinking about it. So when, when you leave this building you're probably not going to really put a lot of thought into what door you're going to exit through. When you buckle your seatbelt, you're probably not going to think really hard left hand or right hand. You're just going to do it because it's, well, you'll think about it now because I said it. But it's it's subconscious at this point. But the more we confess our sins and run to Jesus and immerse ourselves in, in his spirit, we're going to find ourselves doing things because they just feel natural even though they're totally contrary to the way that we're wired. And when we begin to see this, really cool things begin to happen. There's a story I told back in my vetting time over a year ago, so I feel like I can say it one more time. But um, when Angela and I in 2007, we were moving. We were moving from Pisa, Italy to Starkville, Mississippi, and we were selling our car, and I was cleaning out our car, and I gathered five umbrellas out of my car because it rained all the time in Pisa. And so I I was walking back from my car to my apartment, holding four umbrellas, and it was raining, so I had one over my head, and I passed this older lady. She wasn't old, but she was, I don't know, I was like 24, so she may have been 30 for all I know. I called her an old lady, I don't know. If she was my age, she would have been really old. Um, So I passed her, and there was this overwhelming desire to give her an umbrella. And this isn't just Jim being nice. Like I knew at the core of who I am, I had to give that woman an umbrella, which sounds like such a stupid, simple thing. So I turned around and I went to this lady and I said, excuse me, would you, would you like an umbrella? And she said, no, I don't have any money. And I realized it really did look like I'm selling umbrellas on the street. i like, no, 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 no. I'm just giving you an umbrella for free. It's yours if you want it. And she paused and she began to tear up. And I said, is everything all right? And she said, you wouldn't believe this. But I just prayed for God to send me an angel with an umbrella. And I'm I'm no angel. But guess who was really open to hearing about my God at that moment? When we immerse ourselves in God's spirit, we see God's will for us come about in really, really cool ways. So we immerse ourselves in God's word. We immerse ourselves in God's people and God's spirit. But discerning what we should do in making the decision, that's really just part of it. (laughs) Because then we make the decision. And it can be sometimes even harder on the back end than the front end because we begin to doubt our decision. So I want to finish by just looking at how important it is that we trust God after we've done our best to make a decision based on what we perceive to be his will for us. So I'm going to have to divide this into two categories, good decisions and bad decisions, all right? We've got to trust God in both of them, but let's start with good decisions. The Israelites, they appropriately discerned God's will when they were going into Jericho, and they had to trust God when they're just walking around this, this city looking like idiots for a week. They had to trust God that these walls are really going to fall down. Did we? I'm sure somebody was wondering, did we really discern God's will, right? This... Sounds kind of crazy. When I was deciding whether or not I was going to ask Angela to marry me, you know, I, it's one in three and a half billion here, you know, I'm, I I prayed, I journaled, I, I sought wisdom from friends, and then I I felt like I'm pretty sure she's the one I'm supposed to marry, but God, I know how fallible I am. So there's a three-week period. If I'm wrong, I'm My eyes are opened. You can show me I'm wrong. The three weeks ended. He had only encouraged me that I was to ask her to marry me. And I asked her and she said yes. But now I don't have to wonder, did I get the right one in three and a half billion? Because I know it wasn't my intellect and wisdom that chose Angela. I know that God gave her to me. My trust isn't in my ability to make a decision. Largely, my trust is in the God who gave me the answer to that decision. So I look at Angela, and I see God's perfect gift for me. And I hope most days she feels that way about me. But it changes the way we look at our decisions. So I have to imagine some of you, you're in jobs, and you're wondering, did I make the right decision? Or should I be in Orlando? Uh, Should I be at Orlando Grace Church? I don't know. You're wondering, did you make the right decisions? And I would say, trust God. If you did everything you knew to make a decision, now trust him. If, if he wants you in someplace different, he'll make that clear. We do everything that we can to discern the will of God, but at the end of the day, the bulk of it is God doing what he's promised to do, glorify himself through us in this life. All right, so some of you might be here thinking, but Jim, I didn't seek God at all in my decision. In fact, I know I made the wrong decision. And if that's you, you know you made a bad decision. <laughs> yeah, I, that's, that's the bad decision category. We had good decisions, now we have bad decisions. That's actually what's going on in this text. They made a bad decision. So let's look at how it is that they recover. What do they do? Do they, do they go and kill these people? Do they break the covenant that they have with them? No, no. The text tells us they keep their oath, that they keep their word. They, they say, oh, we've we screwed up up until this point. Now, let's implement what God says about seeking his will, what he says about seeking his counsel, and they do it. And, and of course, a lot of us, I think Proverbs fifteen four. if you grew up reading the King James, Proverbs fifteen four comes to mind. It, it says that we are to swear to our hurt. We're to, we to keep our word even if it hurts. And that's what the Israelites do. So what does it look like for you now to make the right decision? Maybe you married somebody you shouldn't have married. Maybe you took a job for the wrong reason. Maybe you've been really mishandling your finances. And yes, there will be consequences in this life for all those bad decisions. But what God's saying is I can make this good still. If you'll trust me and seek my will, I can take it from here. And whenever I say this, you know, I'm so cognizant of the, the spouse. I want to be encouraging to the spouse who's trying to stay faithful in a marriage where the other party is not following God. And I want to encourage that person. But I also want to say very clearly, this is not a reason to stay in an abusive relationship. All right, and I know we can, abusive relationships, they have a scale. But when we are in truly abusive relationships, I would never want anyone, especially a woman, to hear this and think I have to continue to endure this abuse because God has given a way out when the covenant is broken to that degree, when the relationship is that far gone. Don't let an abusive spouse use this kind of logic. Find a counselor, an elder, and bring somebody into that situation. All right, the Israelites messed up. The Gibeonites flat out lied, but look at what happens to them. This is, I think, really interesting. The Gibeonites became servants to the Israelites, which is, that's good for the Israelites, right? I guess they have servants now. And for the Gibeonites, being a servant is a whole lot better than being dead. So we can say, already, this is working out pretty well for both parties. But then it gets so much better. Do you see the faith of the Gibeonites in the way that they respond to Joshua's rebuke? So they screw up, Joshua goes, says, why did you act this way? And they respond, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants, us, of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you, and we did this thing. And some people would say, yeah, they have a belief like demons have belief, you know, in James. They they believe, but it's not a saving belief. They believe, and they shudder. But to me, I look at the Gibeonites' faith and it looks a whole lot like Rahab and we have every reason to be encouraged that her faith was a saving faith. Like the Gibeonites, Rahab was a native of Canaan. Like the Gibeonites, she had confidence that God was going to give this land over to the people of Israel. Like the Gibeonites, she responded with fear before God's people. And like the Gibeonites, Rahab acted with cunning in order that she and her family could be saved and integrated into the family of God. I think the parallels are so striking. I I think the author is going to great lengths for us to look at the Gibeonites and remember Rahab. I think the author is realizing God said that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through Israel and we're seeing this happen. And Yes, the Gibeonites are woodcutters, which sounds terrible because everything they would have needed to do going in the promised land involved cutting wood. But look at where it is that they're they're doing this. They're doing this among the people of the family of God and at the altar of God. So they have been brought into the family and been given access to the presence of the God of Israel. This is working out pretty well for them, because they had faith. In this story, story, everyone has made a bad decision, but in my view, everyone repents and does the best they can to begin to discern what the will of God is for them going forward, and it turns out better for all of them. And it doesn't mean that as we do this, there won't be consequences. Like I said, there will be consequences, but it means that we will be conformed into the image of the son. We will so long for the glory of God that our lives will be used to have a kingdom impact because we will long for his glory and not ours. At the end of the day, we are all liars and deceivers who deserve the wrath of God. And in this story that is about seeking the counsel and the will of God, we see the Christian message. Because we deserve the wrath of God for our deceit, but we get the altar. And Jesus deserved the altar, but he got the wrath of God on the cross. He traded places with us so that we could be a part of the people of the family of God and so that we could have access to his presence. And because of that, we know that we can seek his will for our lives and we know that we can trust him in that process. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful this morning that you have a will of decree and a will of command and you want us to know the will of command for our lives. And so we pray this morning that you would speak to us very clearly. What is your will for us? Whether it's very simple things like clear sins that we should be turning from or very complex things, what to do, and work and relationships and parenting. God, whatever it is, I pray that you would encourage us, that we would be drawn to your word and your people and your spirit, and that you would comfort us and make our paths straight. We thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.